If you have a Bible now, open up to Acts chapter 10, and then we'll pray and dive into our teaching. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you. We thank you for a day set apart to worship you, to come into your court with thanksgiving, and to come into your presence with praise. We want to hear from you, Lord. We want to hear from your word, which is life, your word, which is truth. We want to hear from your gospel, which is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. In this teaching this morning, would you make the message clear? Would you make it effective in our lives? And would you encourage us by it? We ask this to you, Father, not because you owe us anything, not because we've done anything to deserve this, but because you love us and you've sent your son Jesus to be our savior and mediator. He's the only mediator between God and man. And it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. There's a lot of uh, controversies in the church today, a lot of controversies in our culture. Uh, If you've been around the church for some time, you've probably experienced a number of these. The first controversy that's really been going on since the 1920s, 1930s has to deal with alcohol. And the questions usually in this controversy that pop up in the church are questions like these. Can Christians partake? Can they uh, partake? And if they can, should they refrain from partaking of alcohol in certain situations, especially if those around them maybe struggle with sobriety? That's one question. Another question is, well, if Christians do drink, does it hurt their Christian witness, their witness to Jesus? Shouldn't we be distinct in some way? If they can't, How do you explain Jesus drinking wine throughout his ministry or changing water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana? Or if Christians can't, why did the church miss? Why did they miss this restriction for nearly 20 centuries? After all, it wasn't really an issue, this issue with alcohol, for the first time until the 1920s. That's a controversy that's been going on for the last 100 years. The other issue that if you hang around the church for any number of years, you're especially going to hear about this during an election cycle. It's about politics and political engagement. Can Christians vote for non-Christians? That's one question. It's a fair question. Should Christians vote for a certain political party? Should Christians endorse a certain candidate? Can a Christian not vote, not exercise their right as an American to vote? And if they don't exercise that right, is there something wrong with them or should they be? Is it the role of the church to engage politically at all? If so, how? Are are there certain issues that should sway every Christian, no matter what the rest of a platform says? Are there certain issues that are, are so important that they should sway a Christian to vote a certain way, regardless of whatever another party platform says? And if you have answers to those questions, let me know after the service. I'd love to hear them. You can come up and talk to me up front. In 2020, we faced... Man, a number of issues that divided the church, issues of race, vaccines, particularly at Deer Creek, we we faced the question of masks and the question, you know, because we were facing the COVID-19 pandemic, the questions were, well, can the government mandate Christians to wear masks in worship? What if a person has a religious conviction otherwise? Where does disobedience to the government become a requirement? And does wearing a mask even fit into that category by which we should disobey? That controversy resulted in a lot of debate, a lot of controversy, and led many people to leave churches based on their differing opinions just on that issue. A few 
Look at Acts chapter 10. I don't, I don't think it's a stretch to say that Acts 10 involved the central issue, the debate, the central controversy of early Christianity, and the controversy was the controversy of the Gentiles. Gentiles being those who were not ethnically or religiously Jewish. The question was this, was Jesus, was his kingdom, his kingdom on earth, the church for Gentiles as well as Jews? That was the question. Everybody needed to answer that question. And for Jesus' earliest followers, his apostles, their first inclination, their, their first thought, if you asked Peter, the apostle, Peter, is the gospel, is Jesus for Gentiles and Jews? His response would be, uh, I don't think so. No, I, I, I don't think it's for the Gentiles, not, not unless they become Jewish. Not unless they get circumcised or follow the dietary laws laid out in the Old Testament. I don't think so. Peter and the other disciples, they were familiar with the Old Testament. They were brought up on it. They read it regularly in their worship services. And they, they thought, well, God chose Abraham. God chose Abraham. And around the time of Abraham, the world was utterly corrupt. It was wicked. It was polluted. It was, it was filled with stories of death and fratricide and revenge and adultery, polygamy, idolatry, betrayal, bigamy, warfare, slavery, kidnapping, prostitution, incest, distorted sexuality, all other sorts of sin and pollution. You think the world's bad now. Whoa, read the book of Genesis. And because of this, the, the world is said in the book of Genesis to be cursed by God. Even though he created all things good, now following sin, the world is said to be polluted, cursed by God. In fact, in a summary statement in the book of Genesis, talking about what God sees when he looks down, at his sin-filled creation. This was sometime before Abraham, but God, we're told, looks down and, quote, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. It was polluted. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Out of this pollution, out of this cursed creation, God chose Abraham. By grace, God chose one man, one nation, one family to set them aside as holy, to be his people. And through Abraham, through the Hebrew people, God would bring his king to rule. He would bring his king on earth as it is in heaven. Through Abraham, chosen by God, this kingdom, Israel, would be freed from the pollution and curse brought into the world by sin. That's the story they remembered. And they read past Genesis. They saw books like Leviticus in the Old Testament, where God established these, these ceremonial laws to illustrate, to highlight. There's a difference. When you enter my kingdom, you stop living like the world that I brought you out of. There's a difference in living in my kingdom versus the world. So God had ceremonial laws that said certain foods 
They're unclean. They're polluted. You can't eat them. Certain animals, they're polluted. Avoid them. And the biblical logic in all of this was to illustrate living in God's kingdom is different from living in the kingdom of creation. There's a distinction between the kingdom of God and the creation that has been cursed by sin. And this law, this ceremonial distinction was summarized in the book of Leviticus. God said, you are a holy people. I have set you apart as holy. So this is the law. Beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground. You are to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean. Between the living creatures that may be eaten and the living creatures that may not be eaten. But over time, this mentality developed of superiority. The Hebrews began to think, it's it's not just things, it's not just foods or animals or even sin that pollutes us. It's those people out there that pollute us. Those Gentiles, they're, they're so enmeshed with these unclean things that they are the problem. They out there, those who aren't descendants of Abraham, those who aren't Hebrews, they're unclean. They're polluted. They are cursed. Not just avoid things or animals, avoid them. They're cursed. This distinction, by the way, was even symbolized in the temple. God never commanded this, but because of this mentality that people had, the Jews erected this large stone wall going straight through the temple court to separate Jews on one side, Gentiles on the other. Never the two shall meet. Later writers referred to this as the dividing wall of hostility. Clean people over here, unclean over there, Jews, Gentiles, You see this today, don't you? The world divided into tribes. We're clean. They're unclean. If you belong to a particular political party, if you're a Republican, you can develop this mentality. All those Democrats, the woke, the snowflakes, those who watch MSNBC, they're the problem. They're the ones ruining our country, running it into the ground. Vice versa, if you're a Democrat, if you watch MSNBC, your mantra is it's all those MAGA people. You know, they're they're on the wrong side of history with their, their bigotry. They're destroying everything and threatening democracy. They're the problem with their fake news and all of their conspiracy theories. Race can do this. My race, my people, my ethnicity, We're superior. Other races, they pollute everything. Think of Canadians. How much better would the world be without Canadians, right? No poutine, nobody that says A, no Labatt Blue, no Tim Hortons or maple syrup or Canadian bacon. We like Dunkin' Donuts, syrup that comes from Waffle House, and real American bacon. (laughs) My in-laws lived in Canada for a while. I'm still shaking it. Sorry. Christians can think this way. Even though we're saved strictly by the grace of God, not based on our superiority, 
not based on anything that we've done, but because God loved us, not because we're morally superior or better than others, not because we make good choices, but we can subtly get this mentality, everyone outside the church, they're polluted. They're the problem. We just got rid of them. Over time, it was that same mentality, which we're so prone to. It it developed among Peter, the rest of Jesus' disciples, this mentality that said, yeah, Jesus' kingdom, it's for people like us, not there. It's for Jews, not for Gentiles. But then, roughly five years after Jesus ascended into heaven, five years after he had left his disciples, God visits a Gentile for the first time in the New Testament. He he reveals himself in a vision for the first time to one Gentile named Cornelius. We see Cornelius in verse 1, Acts chapter 10, verse 1. We're told about him. We read at Caesarea. Caesarea was this, you know, large city, 70 miles north of Jerusalem. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what is known as the Italian cohort. A centurion was a Roman military official. He was responsible for about 100 Roman troops. But notice verse 2, it gives us detail about the heart, the, the religious devotion of this man named Cornelius, his relationship with God. He says, Cornelius was, quote, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. In other words, Cornelius was as close to being Jewish as you could get without actually becoming Jewish. That phrase used in there, he feared God, you put that in, air, you put that in quotes because that's a technical phrase. It means a God-fearer, a Gentile who believed in the Jewish religion, believed in the God of the Bible. It was a Gentile who had shaped their life around the ethical teachings of the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments, but they hadn't fully embraced the Levitical laws of dietary restrictions and clean and unclean food, and they hadn't fully become Jewish by way of circumcision. So they're almost there, but not quite yet. No circumcision, no dietary restrictions. This is a great story, by the way, to read to your kids. Because they're going to ask a lot of questions. Questions like, what is circumcision? When we first read this story to my son Eli, he said, what is that? What is circumcision? I said, well, it's... (laughs) Ask me later. (laughs) That's Cornelius. He's a God-fearer. A devout man, he believes in God, a moral person, he cares for the poor, he prayed. He raised his children in a reverent, religious way. Verse 22 says that he was well spoken of by the Jewish people who knew him. People are looking out at Cornelius and saying, yes, he's a good man. He's one of those good outsiders, you know, not like the rest, not like the rest of the Gentiles. But nonetheless, uncircumcised, a Gentile, unclean. But then, for the first time in the New Testament, God gives a Gentile a vision. He gives Cornelius a vision. God reveals himself to this Gentile. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended 
as a memorial before God. This is a remarkable vision. An angel of God visiting a Gentile, equating his prayers to an offering in the temple. In the temple, there was these incense offering and the fragrance went up and it was said to be received as a memorial before the Lord. Your prayers are like that, Cornelius. This is unprecedented. But look at what comes next. Even more remarkably, the angel then instructs Cornelius. Verse 5. And now, Cornelius, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with another man named Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. What's going on here? Why would God send an angel to Cornelius, a Gentile, to go and send for Peter, who's a Jew? Jewish tradition was very clear about this. There was an oral tradition throughout Judaism, and books like Judith and Tobit, these were books that were written just about a hundred years or so before Acts was written. And these books made it clear. It said, a Jew should not share meals with Gentiles or eat food prepared by them, even if it's ceremonially clean. Now you realize to send for Peter wasn't like today. You can drive your car over to somebody's house, visit with them for an hour or so, and head back. No, to go and send for Peter meant bring him there, eat food with him, house him, shelter him, spend time with him. He's got a message to share with you. Other oral traditions written down shortly after the time of Jesus said that items belonging to Gentiles, wine, vinegar, pottery, hides, strictly prohibited to Jews. Milk squeezed by Gentiles was prohibited. Avoid it. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, he said there was this practice among Jewish people during the first century that if you were to buy oil, you had to make sure it was Jewish oil, not Gentile, Greek, Roman oil. I don't know what the difference was, but he said don't do it. Other later rabbis said, Jews could not get their hair cut by Gentiles, lest the Gentiles slice his throat. Jewish women could not help deliver the baby of Gentiles, even if they were screaming out for help because there was some fear of sexual impropriety that could potentially happen. There's one story in what's known as the Talmud. This is a collection of Jewish writings. In one of the sections entitled Yoma, this is an oral tradition written down after the time of Jesus, but it had been stories passed along through generations tells the story of a high priest who right before the Day of Atonement, one of the high feast days in Judaism, there was a high priest who had to be removed from office because the day before he was talking with an Arab king. And this Arab king was talking to him for a number, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes. And all of uh, this high priest friends said, no, you talked to him for too long. The saliva from the Arab king, the Gentile, was touching you. So therefore, you're ceremonially unclean. You can't perform the sacrifices tomorrow. Sorry for those of you who are in the front row here. <laughs> Again, the thought was, the Gentiles, they're unclean, they're polluted. None, none of these traditions, these laws, none of these stories were biblical. But if you were a first century Jewish person, oh, these were common sense. That's the mentality. So why would God send this angel to a Gentile to send for Peter, a Jew? Nonetheless, Cornelius, he, he agrees. He says, okay, Lord, I'll do it. He sends two of his servants 
armed with a soldier to go and send for Peter. But he had to be thinking, God, what do you have in mind here? This guy's never going to come. I'll send for him, but I know what he'll say. He'll say, no, he's unclean. He's uncircumcised. He's a Gentile. There's a distinction between us. It's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Haven't you heard the traditions we follow? That, that's what he's going to tell my servants. Cornelius had to be thinking, there's no way Peter's going to travel from Joppa, where he's been doing his ministry at this time, and he's going to come over here to Caesarea. But look at what happens next. A day after Cornelius has his vision, Jesus, uh, sorry, God gives Peter a vision just one day after. We're told Cornelius' servants, they leave Caesarea, they're heading south toward Joppa, and verse 9, the next day... As these servants were on their journey and approaching the city, that's Joppa, Peter went up onto the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. This was a normal time for Jews to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Did you catch that? All types of animals. Not just clean animals. All clean and unclean together on one sheet. Not just un or clean animals like sheep, goats, duck fish, but unclean as well. Squirrel, bat, crow, lizard, crab, pig. I said this is a good story to read your kids, right? You say at this point, this is literally pigs in a blanket. <laughs> it's not that funny. <laughs> Descending from heaven before Peter. This is a familiar story. You remember when Jesus was baptized? Jesus is there. Heaven's opened. Spirit descending like a dove. And then God speaks. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, heavens opened, sheet descends, and God speaks just as he did at Jesus' baptism. Verse 13, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this exchange happened back and forth three more times. When that happens in the Bible, something that happens three times, it means listen up. What's God saying here? Well, what he's saying is this, there is a difference when you live in my kingdom versus living in the kingdom of the world. But the distinction, the difference between my kingdom and the world is no longer the ceremonial law. The distinction between unclean and clean foods, the pollution of certain animals, the Levitical ceremonial distinctions that were dividing you and the Gentiles, those are no longer what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. That distinction is no more. The dividing wall of hostility is broken down. God is saying, Peter, through Abraham, my king Jesus has come. He has brought my kingdom. And if anyone accepts my king, anyone, he is clean. There is no more distinction. What God has called clean, 
You do not call common. You do not call unclean. Oh, and by the way, that superiority superiority mentality that you have, that one that says Gentiles are polluted, I'm about to show you that's not what my kingdom is about. This controversy between Jew and Gentile, no, 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 not in my kingdom. Verse 19, Peter's pondering this vision and God speaks to him again. Behold, three men are looking for you. These are Gentile men from Caesarea. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. I've sent them to you. I want you to go. I want you to teach them about my son, Jesus. That's what it says in verse 22. I've sent them to you. They are going to take you to a Gentile home in a predominantly Gentile city to meet a Gentile man with his Gentile family who I myself have spoken to you all to illustrate to you, Peter, a leader in my church. This is not a controversy in my mind. If anyone accepts my son... Do not call them unclean. They belong to my kingdom. They are clean. If anyone accepts King Jesus, there's no distinction because there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but they are one in Christ Jesus. If anyone accepts the king, the dividing wall is destroyed. If anyone accepts King Jesus, they are fully and truly washed by the blood of my son. So what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. There are so many controversies in our culture today and in the church. They sinfully divide the church. Artificial controversies. Issues God never commanded, ever. Controversies that divide churches like, are you a vaxxer or an anti-vaxxer? Are you a masker or an anti-masker? This political candidate or that political candidate, homeschooling or private schooling or public schooling, alcohol, no alcohol, dating or courting, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal. Our group's for Jesus, that group's not. Our group's about the kingdom, that group's not. Our group is clean, they're polluted, we can do without them, friends. Those may be controversies in your mind. They are not controversies in God's mind. A person can be a Republican. And if they accept King Jesus, who was cursed in their place, then they are clean, they are forgiven, they are blessed. If a person is a Democrat, and if they accept King Jesus, who was cursed in their place, they are clean, they are righteous, they are forgiven. A person can be a socialist, an anti-vaxxer, a masker, a public school board member, a conservative, a libertarian, an advocate for courting, a supporter of Donald Trump, a supporter of Joe Biden. They can be black, white, Latino, Asian, Middle Eastern, or Native American. If they accept Jesus cursed in their place, then they are clean. And what God has made clean through the blood of his son, Jesus, how dare we call them unclean? That doesn't mean these controversies are unimportant or they're not worth debating. They certainly are. They're important. doesn't mean there are no inconsistencies between certain belief systems or political philosophies or worldviews and the belief system of Christianity. Of course there are. I'm not saying that. What it does mean, if, if we take 
secondary issues and make them primary by this superiority mentality, then we need to repent of this idea that my tribe is pure and godly. That tribe is polluted. Because God says to Peter, I've sent you three Gentiles. Men of another nation, go with them. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. All are one in my kingdom through faith in my son, Christ Jesus. After all, do you realize that was God's plan all along? When God called Abraham, this is what people forgot. When God called and chose Abraham, his family, his plan all along was to bless the nations, to bless people from other people groups outside of Abraham's. This is God's promise to Abraham. He says, I will make of you a great nation, Abraham. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the plan all along. God chose Abraham, his family, that through him, his king would come, his kingdom would come, so that all families of the earth would be freed from the pollution and curse brought into the world by sin, so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. All who accept King Jesus who bore the curse in their place. All who accept King Jesus are clean. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. After this vision, Peter gets the point. It's not something he does very often. And Peter said to these people who have been sent by Cornelius, he said to them after going with a posse of his own, he enters Cornelius' house and he says, To them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit with anyone of another nation. You've heard our oral traditions. That's what they say. But God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or unclean. And after Cornelius tells him about the vision of the angel, the vision he had four days prior, he says to Peter, At once I sent for you, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And Peter, who now gets the point that the kingdom of God is for Jew and Gentile, in Jesus all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He proceeds to share the message that all people need to be saved. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Meaning if a person is repentant, if a person has a genuine, humble heart before God, if a person knows they need to be freed from the pollution and curse of sin, then it means the message of King Jesus is for them. The good news of King Jesus who brings peace and blessing by his cross for all nations, all who fear him. So Peter says, you yourselves know, after all, you're a God-fearer, you're familiar with what happens in Israel and Judea. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning 
from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did. And even though God was with him, even though it was evident that this man has the power of God to do miracles, to overthrow the kingdom of pollution, the kingdom of Satan, even though that was evident to all, Jesus was crucified. Peter says, even though he was God in the flesh, God's promised king, quote, they, meaning the religious authorities, put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That's a figure of speech, meaning he died a cursed death. He was a curse. Not because he was cursed by God or because he was cursed because of his sin or he was polluted or sinful, but because he bore the curse of our sin. He bore the pollution of our sin in our place, but he did not stay dead. Verse 40. But in order to show all nations that he's their king, Peter says God raised him from the dead on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That's the message that all people need to be saved. The message of Jesus. I always found this interesting. Remember what it said about Cornelius. He's a devout man. He feared God. His family believed in God. He gave to the poor and he prayed. He is religious. And why I find this so interesting is I'm convinced if this was written today, a good amount of Christians would write and say, Cornelius is fine. He's fine. He's a good person. He's sincere. He's done the best with what God gave him, what's been given to him. He believes in the divine. He prays. He's a spiritual person who cares for the oppressed and the poor. He's fine with God. The reason I'm convinced of that is because the statistics bear it out. 2022, there was a study conducted of American evangelicals and 56% of American evangelicals agreed with the following statement. Quote, if a person is sincere, then God accepts their worship no matter their religion, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. A man like Cornelius, he's fine. He's sincere. He's religious. He's spiritual. He, sure, he doesn't believe in Jesus, but, but, but God isn't that particular. He accepts his worship. He's fine. You can see why this is so interesting. We take secondary issues, politics, school choices, alcohol, masks, and we make those primary issues. We'll leave churches because of those things. But the primary thing, Jesus, salvation, he's the son of God. Only people come to God through him. That's secondary. They're fine. Does a person know Lord Jesus as king? Is he right with God through faith in the son of God? Has a person been made clean by his sacrificial cursed death on the cross? Ah, that's secondary. If they're religious and sincere and pray and serve their community and of course vote Republican, then they're fine. Man, that's backwards. 
Listen carefully. Deer Creek, all people need this message to be saved. Jesus' life, which showed he is God. His cursed death, bearing the wrath of God in the place of his sinful creation. His resurrection, defeating death, defeating Satan, enduring that trial that that earned him eternal life, his coming again to judge the living and the dead, that message saves all need that message. Whether they're religious or irreligious, Mormon or Muslim, spiritual or secular, Jew or Gentile, that is the only message that can save. All people need that message. In fact, that was the whole reason of the ceremonial law in the first place. The whole purpose of the ceremonial law in the first place was to show our greatest pollution is not without, it's within. It's not people out there. It's pollution in our own heart. All are polluted. All need to be made clean by God's king from the pollution that goes beyond what we take in by the mouth, but that penetrates the inner recesses of our heart. Jesus actually taught this to his disciples. They had forgot it, to be sure, but this is the message that he said. He called all people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, are you also without understanding? Don't you get what this was about? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him. It enters his mouth, not his heart, and it goes into his stomach and is expelled. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he says, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. That's what defiles a person. The whole purpose of the Levitical ceremonial laws was to illustrate that point. You can't keep the laws. And by keeping them, you don't make yourself clean. You need an inner cleansing. You need a king to make you clean. True pollution's in the heart. And only Jesus can make one clean, forgiven, and blessed. Cornelius, he didn't need to become a Jew because he was a Gentile. Nor was he fine with God because he was just devout and religious and sincere. Cornelius needed Jesus. So Peter closes his sermon not with, you're fine. Nor does he say, off to circumcision you go and obey the Levitical ceremonial regulations. Instead, he tells Cornelius, this is what Jesus told us to teach, Cornelius. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living, and the dead. He's the king. Promise to Abraham, come in the flesh. To him, all the prophets, including Abraham, bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Do you believe in that? Do you believe that one day you will face Jesus 
the great king and judge of creation, do you believe only King Jesus, cursed in your place, can make you clean, forgiven, and blessed? I'm prone to forget it. I need that reminder constantly. (laughs) My children, this was just uh, yesterday, actually. They were at the art table doing uh, projects and coloring and, you know, crayons, cutting, crafts, all that stuff at 5.22 (laughs) a.m. And they had watched a movie the night before that had the song in it, Come Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. You remember that song? God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. My daughter Lainey looks over to Jane who's singing it and says, do you know who our Savior is? Born on Christmas Day? It's Jesus. And Jane looks back and says, yeah, but a lot of other people were born on Christmas Day. (laughs) (laughs) What a good reminder. We're so prone to forget. All need this message. As one writer put it later on, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the message of Christ because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, without exception. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, wanted to leave his disciples, his followers, with a way of remembering so that they wouldn't forget that this message saves. It's it's only him who saves And he wanted them to be sure of this, not just intellectually, but he wanted them to hold in their hands this salvation message. So Jesus gave his disciples this meal, and the Apostle Paul wrote that this was a tradition that he had received from Jesus. He said that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks to the Lord who gave it, he broke the bread. And he gave it to his disciples, and he told them, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, for your salvation. And in like manner, after they had finished eating, Jesus took the cup. Jesus said, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of all your sins. And he told them, for as often as you eat this bread, you drink this cup as long as you have them in your hands, you declare his death, my death, until I come again. Don't forget, it's the message of salvation that he wants you to experience this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus and you know this message, if you know you need to be made clean by Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifices, curse death in your place, then come, eat. He wants to remind you again that his message is true and you are saved by his grace. If that's not you, then don't join. Don't, Don't come to this meal. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he said, that whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
He says, let a person examine himself, then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So if you don't believe in Jesus, examine yourself. Ask Jesus to reveal himself to you, and I promise you he will. Because he wants to save all those who with a true repentant heart come to him in faith. Let's pray. I'd like to ask our elders who are going to be helping administer communion to come and join us. And let's pray that Jesus would set this meal apart from just mere bread and mere cup, and he would use it for an extraordinary purpose to remind us of his salvation. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, our Savior, the only mediator between God and man, you are true, you are righteous, you are wonderful. By your sacrifice, you have made us clean. Jesus, we come before you and we have pollution inside of us. We have sin that taints us. And nonetheless, you invite us time and time again to come and feast on your goodness, to come and remember that we are forgiven, we are clean, and we are righteous because of what you have done, not because of what we are. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you so much that you've given us these things as well, this bread and this cup, to hold in our hands to remember that we are loved by you, we are saved by you, and you will one day bring us to yourself perfectly where we will feast with you in eternal life. God, use these these things that you've given as a means to that end. In your name we pray, amen.